Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is The Guardian. There are specific social services payments that we need to look at and really think about if those women had that supplementary payment reinstated, their ability to seek work would be part of the solution to both their economic situation, but they then become another part of the available workforce. And we keep forgetting about this rather than thinking of disadvantage all about welfare. That payment would show respect and give dignity back to those women. And so they've made the right choice to leave those violent arrangements. Hello, I'm Sarah Martin, Chief Political Correspondent at Guardian Australia. In this episode of Australian Politics, I'm talking to Sam Mostyn, who's the newly appointed chair of the government's Women's Economic Equality Task Force and, among other roles, President of Chief Executive Women. I wanted to have Sam on the podcast this week because the government has indicated that it wants to put women's economic participation at the centre of its policy-making decisions. We talked to Sam about the role of the task force and some of the bigger cultural and structural challenges preventing full gender equality in Australian society. So, Sam Mostyn, thank you so much for joining us on Australian Politics today. It's great to have you on the show. Great to be with you, Sarah. Thank you. So, Sam, I know you've been in Canberra recently in your newly appointed role as chair of the Women's Economic Equality Task Force. So I was hoping to start with that, if if we might. Uh, how did the first meetings go and um, what are you hoping this task force will achieve? Well, it was good for us to meet predominantly in Canberra. We had most of the task force in Canberra last Wednesday. The minister attended for most of the meeting, uh, Minister Gallagher, and as did a number of the central people from Finance and Treasury, the Office for Women and DSS. So it was a really good first meeting of the task force. We're a big group, so there's 13 of us all together um, and all appointed by uh, the minister and the cabinet. So there's broad representation right across the country and women who bring lots of different perspectives um, and unique lived experiences of things to do with the role of the task force. The thing I liked about our first meeting, the minister was very encouraging for us to remain independent and to be bold and to really think carefully about what does the future of the country look like if we were to be truly gender equal and to think about how we could help guide government on the steps to get there in many timeframes, not just the short-term issues. But our, our primary role is sort of across a number of areas. One is to really inform the national strategy to achieve gender equality. 
no small task. And that, that piece of work will go on until about May, I think, where we're required to do quite a bit of our drafting around that. Um, we're being asked to look at what are the specific gender perspectives that will need to be addressed in the white paper on employment that came from the Jobs and Skills Summit. We've been asked to look at how does a government embed a gender-responsive budgeting and policy-making process so that you can assess any form of a budget commitment or a policy commitment through a gender-responsive process, which I'm happy to, to talk to you a bit more about, and then really to look at the things that are persistent and can be changed with good policy and good budget measures, things like how to deal with the gender pay gap, um, how to grow significantly women's workforce participation around the country and our advancement inside um, organisations, how we deal with this really persistent and I think quite pernicious problem we have in Australia, which is the gender segregation. You know, we've got more women in highly feminised sectors, low-paid, insecure work, than there are um, the men's sectors that tend to have mm. good jobs, um, solid careers and good salaries. And we've got to take into account skills and industries of the future and Lastly, but probably most fundamentally, how does the, the role of safety, respect for women, safe workplaces and how women um, experiencing violence can be responded to with um, a sense that we can help to re reduce that violence across the country because of this link between mm. women's safety um, and sense of personal safety and their financial and economic futures. So it's quite a lot we've got to do. There is a lot there. <laughs> So um, I, I just wanted to take you back to one of the first things that you, you talked about, which was the sort of bold vision for what a gender equal Australia looks like. And I, I wanted to ask you, what do we mean when we talk about equality? What does a gender equal Australia look like? That's the question at the heart of all of this, Sarah. And I think it's a question that many of us who've been around a long time have asked for a long time, that we don't seem to be making a lot of progress when it comes to mm. the kinds of um, statistics or measures that we would say, and particularly if the Treasurer's moving towards a wellbeing budget, if we had measures that said, what would it tell us about a country um, if it was more gender equal, what would those measures look like? I, mm. I think it takes us to some fairly simple things and then they're quite dramatic things and they're things that not just budgets and policy fix but go to the general culture of the country. A couple of our members of the task force, Jennifer Westacott in particular, but Professor Ray Cooper and others suggested at our meeting that it would be great to have almost like a scaffolding or a, an architecture that said, if you were to have a country that was truly gender equal, what would its features be? What would mm. the measurements look like? And, and how can you aspire to get there? And, and mm. I think we'll use quite a bit of that shaping to answer this question. And so the, the basic questions would be, do women feel as safe as men in every environment in which they find themselves? Yeah. Do women um, receive equal pay for the job they do relative to a man? And are women equally paid more generally because they have access to the same kind of good, solid careers and work that men have? Are women in represented in leadership roles in the, the places where policies and decisions are made about us? And then you get into some deep cultural questions. Do men in Australia feel as comfortable as women taking paid parental leave? Do men mm. feel as comfortable working flexibly so that the country doesn't define success or ambition only through full-time work where people don't take time to care? And there are a range of questions we could ask, but we're hoping to build a framework around this that says if we could get it down to some really simple ambitions that are measurable, let's set that out and say that's a big ambition for the country, almost like a mission, and let's understand that is over the next five, ten 15, 20 years mm. and make a big generational um, attempt at fixing this 
rather than, um, I guess, a more uh, a slower and um, just you know, bit by bit hoping that we get some equality for women. Yeah, sure. And there are obviously some huge cultural and structural uh, barriers for your group to sort of work on in sort of coming up with that vision and that pathway to get there. I wanted to ask, are there countries that are doing it well? If we're looking at what a, a good, uh, you know, gender equal society looks like, are there some, uh, you know, policies that we can aspire to or some countries that are doing it better than others that perhaps Australia can look to? Yes, there are. And if we just look at where we sit in the OECD charts or World Economic Forum charts, we've dropped over time. How bad are we, can I ask? In the World Economic Forum, we've come back a little bit this year, but we have been very, very low. We were as low as 70th in the world, and now I think we're around about 38th in the world for women's economic participation. And yet we are number one in the world on all those measures for women's educational attainment um, across all fields, um, whether that's higher education or through the trades. But that's regarded as an absolute national asset. And yet when you think, how are those women then part of the economy? Do they participate in equal numbers to men? We drop like a stone and and we've been dropping over time. And there are many features uh, for that. And the, the countries that stay up near the top in economic participation typically have some of those features of the things we've started talking about. They are largely Nordic countries, although not exclusively, but they're Mm. countries that have actually worked very hard on the culture of who does what. They start with a view that care work is not women's work, that a nation that cares about its young people, it's those that need care, regards care as something that we all have a job to do and that when anyone chooses to take care or time to care for others young children or or aged parents, that that doesn't sit um, uncomfortably with the notion of continuing to work and and that often that kind of unpaid care work is often reflected in tax credits and other things that say the care matters and it's not just unpaid or, or unvalued. So I think those countries typically have better arrangements where men and women are working far more collaboratively and culturally to to take up family responsibilities. Those countries have more women in senior positions, although it's not, that's one of the biggest nuts to crack around the world of women really being in senior positions. Many of those countries have tax systems that look after things like childcare um, and take away that cost burden um, from families to, to clarify that, again, it's not women's work or women not being able to work that have to pay for the, the childcare costs. And, um, and, there are, and there are other features that, that talk about how you don't allow a society to become so segmented or segregated mm-hmm. that we have an assumption about who does what work. And so those countries typically have many, many women in jobs that we would say in this country largely um, are held by men and don't have nearly the same weight of segregation and feminisation in low-paid industries, particularly in care. But there are other countries. I know at the moment that there are experts at the OECD that are working with the Canadian government, again, to look at what would a national program look like? What are the features of it? What would you do with your your tax system, your payment systems, tax and transfers, um, childcare and respect for women? And there are ways of doing that. Um, So there are countries now looking at that as a national mission. And I know Canada Mm. is one of those countries. Okay. So I'm interested in when you're talking about our rating dropping like a stone once you start looking at economic participation. Can you explain to us, is that um, just to do with the number of hours that women are in the workforce or what, what are they looking at when they're measuring female economic participation? Yeah, I think the measures um, are largely around, and it's almost like for like basis, on 
how much women are essential drivers of the economy through really, I hate the term full-time, but it's where they're participating in work that is secure, is well-paid, and they're contributing through their taxes um, and other contributions to the well-being of the economy more generally. So it's a fairly holistic measure that looks at where women are participating um, how many of them are not participating. So we have a very big fall-off of women participating in any form of paid work as they hit that period of childbearing. And and even when they come back to work after taking a period of leave, paid or otherwise, they never really get back to anything like the trajectory of men's careers, um, both mm. in terms of income and, and stature. And so they often find themselves in a job that remains less useful in terms of their skills and attributes but paid less and they accumulate less superannuation, they accumulate less leave and arrangements that um, would say that as a, if you add all of that up and look at the contribution that women are making to the economy, it's, it's a huge gap between um, when women start out having been educated to where they end up. There are a number of other measures within the World Economic Forum's analysis but if the, the short reading is that we waste and squander this incredible talent, even if I get sort of fairly prosaic about it, these are workers at a time when we need strong participation in our workforces and we we allow ourselves to just say, you know, that they're not valuable to us because we've allowed culturally this situation mm. where they've had to step out of the workforce. And, of course, they're, they're losing skills over that time. They're losing attachment to employers. Um, all sorts of things happen once that decision is made to leave work because of those caring responsibilities. I think it's largely why men don't do it because they know mm. the consequence of being separated from an employer and growing your reputation and your skills. And, of course, they don't want to have any period where they're not accumulating superannuation balances. Mm. Plus they must know it's also really exhausting. I think, I think anyone who's listening who, who tries to do the juggle would agree. I've been thinking about this a lot. There hasn't been a time in, in our modern history where we haven't been wanting to talk about the value of care, who does it and how hard it is. And there have been women economists for 150 years who've made that case about how we analyse an economy, but we've typically avoided or ignored women economists. We've mm. listened to the men economists who look at it as a production and consumption analysis and that by the time women are back in the household, they're a part of the consumption story as opposed mm. to production. So we don't put a value on the work that we do when we're not in the paid workforce. And so you get these very skewed economic outcomes, which is why when we did the work with Angela Jackson with Impact Economics late last year, and we looked at the available number of women across the country who want to be back in that production side of things. Um, and it, it's, it's between half a million and a million workers around the country that this begins to affect. Um, and I'm really delighted then that Danielle Wood, as a, a leading woman economist, is on our task force and led the Jobs and Skills Summit because she was able to give an analysis of the economy through these kind of dynamics, not just the typical economic framing of what does a successful country look like. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure um, people who are listening to this will remember Danielle's fantastic comment about if, you know, women's untapped potential was a was a resource, we'd be giving subsidies to people to dig it out of the ground. So I think that really sort of nailed the point you're making there. So I guess the big question then is, what can governments do to address this? And I know it must be frustrating to you because some of those things are fairly obvious, like increasing paid parental leave and having universal childcare access. But yet, despite those issues being talked about for a very long time, we are making some progress, but we're still not there yet. So what can the government do and what should this government do, I guess, over the short and medium term to try and improve the situation? Yes, I, I think we have reached a moment where if we can meet this moment, we can actually do 
many good things for women. And government does have a huge role to play, not exclusively, but it has a big leadership role to play and has a big investment role to play. So you've mentioned the things where government can invest and invest big time. And the Albanese government came to power with a promise of that $5.6 billion of money to go to childcare and to to increase the subsidies um, for a broader cohort of, of families across the country. And we saw that in New South Wales as well. Before the federal election, the state government committed $5 billion to a childcare fund um, and to work in conjunction with the Commonwealth and other states to add an extra day of preschool to schools and then to look at better funding for early education and care. So that is one of those big, heavy lifting I call it social infrastructure, and it should be the equivalent of any other infrastructure investment that's made in the country that has this huge payback, um, and it's a compounding payback into the economy, but it also does something else beyond just getting women into the workforce and regaining their sense of dignity in their careers. It also is the best thing for our children and our families. So we know that that early intervention with good, high-quality, universal childcare is helping our kids start school better, and it's a much better set of arrangements for families to deal with all sorts of things, including the current cost of living challenges. So that's a big one. The government can also set the tone on paid parental leave. There's a number of us from CEW, from the BCA, from many different parts of the economy calling for 26 weeks of paid parental leave. A number of us have called for superannuation to be paid on both paid or unpaid leave. These are signals that say the financial costs of taking leave shouldn't be borne by that woman, that having paid leave um, and having the superannuation continuing during that time is a respectful acknowledgement that you don't want these women or, or those men who take the leave. So make sure there are enough mechanisms in this to encourage men to take leave more often. Um, we're all pretty supportive of a use it or lose it program for benefits for men to take leave so that there is an incentive and that has that has worked well elsewhere. They're sort of things that we think are the big heavy lifting things and it sets a tone for the rest of the community, for business, um, for, for other organisations to see that these things are structurally important and important to the economy. They're also important to women and they're respectful. But I think one of the things we discussed at the first meeting of the panel, the task force, which I'm really proud of, is we talked about whether we shouldn't start the whole conversation on what does a gender equal world look like by looking specifically at the most disadvantaged, excluded women in our society. And when you look at the work that people like Anne Summers have done recently um, and others who've looked at the choices that often women are having to make to leave violent relationships or just have to leave for other reasons. The numbers, hundreds of thousands of women who are sole parents who don't have any recognition of that in a sole parent payment that used to be Mm. in our system, government could make a profound decision to say, actually, those women who are trying to raise children and do that well, and at the moment, without that payment, um, can barely survive that. They are having to choose poverty over violence or those other circumstances. And the the sacrifices they make for those children often mean they they haven't got nearly enough resources to be living somewhere safe, and especially for kids, or to be seeking to work. And Anne's work showed that if those women had that supplementary payment reinstated, their ability to seek work would be part of the solution to both their economic situation, but they then become another part of the available workforce. And we keep forgetting about this rather than thinking of disadvantage all about welfare that payment would show respect and give dignity back to those women. And so they've made the right choice to leave those violent arrangements, protecting their children, but they can work and they can take care of their kids better with those payments. There are specific social services payments that we need to look at and really think about, you know, are these the moments to do that, um, to get those women both dignity and opportunity um, to work and, and 
do much better in the circumstances than they find themselves mm. in. There's many other things that government can do and we will look at, at, at other things in the payments tax and transfer system. KPMG came out with a brilliant report this week suggesting that a tax credit for unpaid work at home for women who do a lot of that work and just get no benefits. So you can be quite creative. And I think with the Treasurer looking into a wellbeing budget, these kind of programs start to become part of really creative policy that's helping to build a much more vibrant, sustainable economy that you can measure in the wellbeing of the country. I must say I missed that one, but I, I do like the sound of it. So uh, there's a lot that the government can do. I know obviously the issue of PPL and universal childcare access came up at the Jobs and Skills Summit and the government has made it pretty clear that it's not in a position to bring the childcare subsidy forward, nor is it sort of looking at this stage at expanding PPL, although it's sort of not completely off the table, but it's certainly not something we can expect um, anytime soon. By the way, uh, Jim Chalmers is holding on to those purse strings. What do you make of that response? I mean, obviously, the government has argued that the uh, childcare reforms are an investment. Why is it not an investment to bring it forward six months? I join a whole range of um, organisations that have called for that system to be brought forward to January, and I remain convinced that that is the right thing to do and would show an intention to do these things now and not delay. Uh, I do understand that there is a fiscal window and a fiscal envelope and um, the same was the same case was made in New South Wales when the state treasurer created the fund and then had to create that, a mechanism for that fund to be operational. It is true that even if the government was to bring it forward to January and start to pass through um, some of those benefits, we have a, a supply side issue in early education that we've got to be conscious of. So one of the mm. things that we will also look at both in the task force and was a feature at the Jobs and Skills Summit and in many of the organisations that advocated for this prior to the, ele- the federal election, we've got to look at the care sector itself. There's been good work done on paying aged care workers more and taking these matters to the, to the Fair Work Commission. But until we understand that or we, we give some sense and a reliable sense that childcare workers, early educators, will be paid properly, will be respected, that there's a career in those jobs. We can't rely on an underpaid, vulnerable workforce that is increasingly diminishing as people leave the sector because in many cases they can earn money baristering um, or mm. going to another part of the education sector just because the pay is so differential. And so I think it's not unfair to think if it's because we have to wait six months until July for the payments to start to flow, then we've got to utilise every bit of time we've got now to do the analysis on the childcare workforce, really go back to this notion of what does a, an early education and care system look like and start doing the really hard work of how do you design that system to make sure that the benefits when they come won't flow to childcare providers and the private system, but will flow to the advantage of the workers and the children and families themselves. And so there are many calls at the moment for that design to be done very well. We will look at that as well. And what are the design features you put into putting all this money into the economy to ensure that we don't just grow profits for private childcare facilities, mm. which should, should not be the outcome of all this work. It's got to be sustainable. And, and if that means that, that in six months' time we're talking, or in July 2023, we're into it and we are spending that time on the childcare workforce and putting care at the centre of the economy and understanding what that means from all sorts of other levers that governments can pull, I think that produces a much more sustainable outcome. And I'm, I'm kind of prepared, if that's what we're doing in that six months, that we do that really, really well to ensure that when the money flows, it's going into the right parts of the system. Do you get the sense that the government is open to a increase in um, the pay to childcare workers as it has been to aged care workers? 
Well, I certainly take from the public comments that the Prime Minister has made, the Minister for Women has made, the Minister for Early Education, all of them. There are about six ministers in the the current federal government Mm. who have some touch into this area. I don't think I've heard any one of them dispute the idea that the childcare workforce, just like the aged care workforce, the disability care workforce, must go through a process of appropriate um, rebalancing and have a proper and decent wage and, and a sense of a career and to turn these jobs into the kinds of things that men want to do as well. So, you know, one of the reasons that they're so predominantly feminised sectors is they are underpaid and they are under-respected largely, other than by families who know how important this is, and they're very either casualised or so difficult to manage because there isn't a sense of good pay, security and career. And I'd like to think that just like education generally, this area should be getting that same respectful treatment and we see more and more people want, young people, wanting to have a career in care sectors because they can see themselves being paid well and respected. That would be a big change to now where we rely so heavily on um, insecure work and, and people who are just holding the system together for us. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting to hear how many of these issues are interrelated and how, you know, getting one element right might help other elements as well. I know the task force is going to be advising the government on its gender equality strategy and the employment white paper. Can you tell us what you're hoping to see out of the gender equality strategy um, and I guess what the task force will be prioritising? Yes, well, as I said earlier, just in terms of time, we have said that at the values of the task force itself, we do want to look at the position of the most disadvantaged women across the community. So we, mm. will, we will certainly be looking at that as a priority. More generally, I think that the idea of how you build a document and a series of policies and processes and architecture behind gender equality, how you do that means you've got to have a serious look at um, things at, at all levels and you can't ignore that there is a basic cultural issue in this country about respect. Mm. And I think we'd like to make that link between um, the respectful engagement with women, the respect for women wherever we are, respect for women and girls, that that is actually part of the financial security for those women and girls through their life course and that this intersects, as you said, as a system all the way through our lives. So any strategy that's looking to achieve gender equality is going to have to be very honest about where we start. And I, if I reflect on the fact that um, just two weeks ago the National Research Organisation on Women's Safety published again, this longitudinal work that shows what the prevalence of sexual violence is against women in this country. And the shocking figure is that women in their 20s, young women right across the country today, 50% of those women will experience or have experienced sexual violence. 50%. It gets down into about 34% when it's women um, into their 30s and 40s. But it's a staggering thought to think that, you know, my daughter, who's 23, is in a cohort of young women across the country and she's got a one in two chance of suffering sexual violence of some kind. And so I think the work that goes on with the National Plan to um, Reduce Violence Against Women that sits with Minister Rishworth, that together with the work that we're doing on the economics and participation of women, we've got to bring these things together and say, well, culturally the country has to, has to acknowledge that we've got to do something better on respect for women from the earliest time. So that, that's one big part of it. The next things that are the layering of the things we'd say have a time horizon. So build the horizons that say, where do you go next to look at how women are respected in certain parts of the workforce? So why do we have so few women in the STEM careers of the future? And why are so many women in the growth care sector of the future so poorly paid? So back to the discussion of how do we reorient the the pay and career opportunities in sectors that are highly feminised? You know, I, I just think this, this strategy is going to have to work at all sorts of levels, but ultimately it has to set out 
an ambition to say Australia will only prosper if we have come to um, an understanding and done the work that women and men are equal and that you could tell Mm. a young girl and a young boy today that their chances over their life were, were equal and could, and could believe that when you said it to them both. When you talk about the cultural challenges, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on how you go about changing that culture. I mean, Australia, I guess, has some terrible stereotypes in terms of how it views women. We all have a sense as to how true they may be or, or not. But how do you go about changing a country's culture? Well, I think you first have to name a few things and then engage in respectful conversations together. This isn't an anti-men campaign. I want to stress that. And this isn't a zero-sum game for men. This is a richness of a culture that could do so much better if we could eliminate those things that do separate us or cause um, discrimination or disadvantage. And so I think naming it, well, I think Australia has quite a blokey culture. When when people from other nations, particularly around the region and around the world, look at us, they kind of say, you're, you're quite a blokey place. And, you know, I've had the great fortune of working in elite men's football and, and mm. football generally over 15 years. And, you know, before women started to arrive in Australian rules football and other sports, they were the domain of men. Men's sport was was sport. We didn't talk about women's sport. We didn't acknowledge that women could run sport. Or and you know, that that's the same in the professions. So we've broken down a lot of those barriers and invited women to play those roles. And as we've seen in sport, once you you give a respectful permission for women to be their very best in sport, all of a sudden you unleash this incredible and valuable community asset for women and girls and and for the and for the country, which we've seen in sport more generally. And it doesn't surprise me that it's women who've won most of the Paralympic and Olympic medals and are still are the most successful team sports on the on the world stage for Australia. So, you know, there are some lessons to be drawn from how you can break down that blokiness. I think there's um, lots of work to do in the safety space. We've heard from so many young women so publicly about the fact that our consent laws were not good enough and our consent education has been poor. We've had recent examples of schools where boys are behaving appallingly with um, not just in a sexist way but racist and ableist. And so our education systems are going to have to really knuckle down and work out how to build that that respect early. I think government can help with that, with all sorts of campaigns. But one of the biggest things I think that's happened in our favour most recently is a much more gender-equal parliament. So the, the models and messages we send to young people today about where you can go they are being broken down. And I love to see a parliament that has lots of women and chances for more women to be in our parliaments. I like a cabinet that has a lot of women in it. Um, And I think the more that organisations, countries, all of us work to make sure that that women are visible in positions of power, in decision-making, apart from the fact that we know we help make better decisions together, it sends a, a very strong message that those pathways are open. And, you know, when I was growing up, those pathways were certainly not there. The visible leadership of Australia was a man and um, and you had to really fight to get in as a woman. Um, so I think that there'll be parts of this about how you role model, how you celebrate. Um, I'd love to see many, many more men entering into this conversation and talking about the roles that they would like to play as carers, as family leaders, not just in that more prosaic notion notion of being a breadwinner um, and celebrate the women who play that role. So there are many aspects to this and I think we've got to almost draw a really viable, exciting and achievable picture of a country and show what those measurements would look like but understand that, you know, that that's not going to be fixed in the October budget or the May budget or or even around budgets. It's more of a, a mission for us all to engage with and to enter in a spirit of generosity 
And of course, I haven't mentioned, you know, First Nations women, migrant women, women with a disability, you know, that intersectional and um, very special set of things we need to think about with women who are always excluded because of that compounding level of disadvantage. There's a lot of work to do there. And I think listening to those advocates, championing the rights of people with lived experiences of discrimination and, and have been just left out of a system, we've got to do that much, much better. And uh, I think the government has set out a stall to say they want to be a kinder government. They want to embrace the notion of these conversations. So I'm not being Pollyanna, but I, you know, we've got to we've got to lead on some of these things, not just assume that change happens by mm. leaving it to others. I know with your CEW hat on, you had a, a reasonably bleak report recently about the level of female leadership in Australia's top corporates. And I wanted to ask you, I guess, generally given that that suggested equality in leadership was 100 years away, are you hopeful for the potential of unlocking women's economic participation? Sarah, I wouldn't take on these roles unless I was ultimately very hopeful and optimistic. And for me, there's just a, there's a big sort of condition to that, though. And you mentioned the, um, the appalling rates of women succeeding into senior management roles in companies. Where we've seen great success is women into non-executive board roles in the governance side of things. And what's different between those two things? In the board situation, there have been organisations like the 30% Club um, and 4040 Vision that have actually set targets and made the targets consequential and and accountable. And so when you set a target and you go after that target, particularly around women's presence in leadership positions, you can deliver it. And so I think whether it's executive appointments that need a very strong focus uh, that will come from investors um, and others that say that those companies must now um, set targets and deliver them and there are consequences if they don't, they'll get there because there's no shortage of women who want to be in those roles and deserve to be in those roles. That's what happened in sport. Back at the AFL, a target was set to get a woman into the AFL commission and it was an explicit, you know, it was a quota target. And once you got that in, things started to move. So I think we're going to have to use all sorts of mechanisms, targets, accountability, consequence for those that don't. One of the things we saw in our report was that those companies that have no women in their executive teams or no women on their boards were turning up in conversations in the financial press in things that were called shame files. Now, we didn't use that language, but others were, and there were papers looking at whether people should invest in those companies or be customers of those companies. And I think more and more there's an understanding that you need to name these things and then give people a chance to get better and then show the progress you make and why it's good for all of us and do that in an optimistic way. I think we can do this very respectfully and not leave people behind, but there's got to be a, you know, a huge degree of honesty with which we start. Probably nothing wrong with a shame file on the side very occasionally. <laughs> if that's where that data ends up, for those that say that's important to them and naming it means that they have to take a deep look and reflect and think, okay, we can do better, then that's good. Um, it's not the only way to fix things, but we do have a, a women's gender equality agency. There's been lots of submissions to what the agency can do more in the terms of reporting and asking for more with consequence. I think the, the many state governments, I know New South Wales now does this, and I would hope the Commonwealth could do this, they have these huge levers of procurement. And so the New South Wales government has said through their treasurer, Matt Keane, that he will prefer to give big major state contracts to companies that have a pathway to gender equality. And conversely, there are problems with companies coming to seek government contracts who are doing poorly. Now, that's a re- to me, that is a really great carrot. That says there's a big prize here for you, big contracts in big areas where we want to see more women. And, and, and you know, that's a helpful way of thinking about the, the, the push as well as the pull. So I think 
we, we can do this. I have to believe that. I want to believe it as much for my nephews as I do for my daughter. And I just know we won't meet our potential as a country in the kind of world we are now facing into if we don't get this right. So the prize is enormous. It's not just about women. It's about a society that respects all its citizens and sees that there is a, a great prize to be able to you know, show respect for everyone and, and deal with those persistent, pernicious blockages that are keeping women out of our system or showing lack of respect for women across our society. Sam Mostyn, thank you so much for joining Australian Politics for what has been a really interesting discussion. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Sarah. This episode was produced by Alison Chan and Karishma Luthria. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. I'm Sarah Martin and I'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before Shopify, were you wondering where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.